Welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my intrepid co-host, friend, and colleague, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? Happy Monday. Always good to record these on the right after a nice weekend. Yes. Feeling refreshed, revitalized, ready to go. Uh, indeed, that's where we are. We also had an extra week off between recordings. We had some scheduling and logistical uh, challenges that forced us to push, which I think was good because it gave us uh, maybe a, a little broader palette of topics to cover today. And, and indeed, we have a lot to get through. So uh, I will not uh, I, I will not uh, delay too long before we jump in. Um, before we do uh, the normal uh, reminders, we're not providing legal advice. We're not discussing any confidential information. Any and all views that you hear today are mine and Tim's. If you disagree or dislike anything that you hear, it is solely the fault of myself and Tim, not our. Blame us. Blame us. Blame us and us alone. That is that is the truth. Um, and, and as always, you can find us anywhere you get your podcast content. Uh, if you're a fan, please subscribe. Please give us a rating. Uh, and we will be, uh, again, we come to you every two weeks as a, as a general matter. And we'll be back again um, in, in late May for, for another episode here. Uh, so without uh without any further um ceremony here let me let me just jump right in so today is a very enforcement focused uh podcast we haven't done one of these in a while i think um we did one very early on in the in the pod that we called enforcement palooza i think we in the spirit of the fact that we're referring to jcpoa 2.0 all the time we may refer to this one as enforcement palooza 2.0 um we have a we have a number of recent enforcement actions that kind of cut across a number of different agencies that we're going to cover, and then a few other uh, items of interest at the end that we just want to touch on very quickly in the lightning round. So the roadmap for today is we're going to cover uh, SAP, uh, and that, of course, cuts across three different agencies who resolved uh, potential sanctions violations and export control violations with SAP. Uh, MoneyGram, Alliance Steel, Honeywell, uh, and then Lukong Technology, uh, another Another lawsuit uh, in D.C., another victory for a uh, CCMC entity uh, taking taking aim at the DOD process. Uh, and then in the lightning round, we're going to touch very quickly on JCPOA 2.0. What's the latest? Uh, a couple of uh, interesting remarks from Secretary Blinken relating to uh, Venezuela and Cuba we want to just reflect on quickly. And then finally, uh, the recent... Uh, Belarus general license uh, that was issued that's uh, we we touched upon a couple of weeks ago. We're going to circle back to that. So so that's going to be our show for today. Uh, Tim, anything before we dive in to Enforcement Palooza 2.0? I think there's a lot of interesting stuff percolating as we'll talk about today. I mean, there's a few interesting things that happen, but I think there's a lot more interesting. There are a lot more interesting things that are out there on the horizon sometime soon. So hopefully we'll preview them today and then we can talk in the next couple of weeks and months about what actually happened. Yeah. And I think also a number of things we're not touching on today. There's, there's 
basically almost no China on this episode, which is obviously very rare for us. There's a lot swirling around with China. The recent Russia and Russia sanctions that we dove into the last time, we're not really coming back to that. So there is a lot that's uh, kind of swirling around off um, off mic, off camera, so to speak, that I'm sure we will be coming back to in the coming weeks. But for now, we wanted to focus on some of these issues and uh, and and dive into these. So, um, so why don't we just go ahead and get started with item number one, which is uh, the enforcement action and uh, that was just announced um, about a little less than two weeks ago with SAP. The uh, of course the large German software company uh, that anybody in the business world is probably who who has any kind of software or ERP system you probably know SAP. Uh, so this was a joint resolution, and there's a couple of different aspects of this. We're not gonna we're not gonna dive into all all the minutia of this, but I think there's a couple of interesting aspects of this that we wanted to touch on. So this was a joint resolution with DOJ, OFAC, and Commerce. Um, DOJ reached a non-prosecution agreement, and in connection with that, there's going to be some disgorgement of profits relating to the violations, uh, and then there are some penalties that are also being assessed. They they also uh, and OFAC and Commerce each have um, have their own piece of that as well. On the Commerce side, interestingly, there's a three-year. It's not a mo- it's not exactly a monitorship. It is a um, there is a, a three-year audit report requirement with commerce that is going to be uh, imposed, which is interesting. There is a uh, an item we're going to talk about later today where there is uh, some kind of a quasi-monitor that has been imposed in the Honeywell matter, but this this one's an audit requirement. But I think that the, um, and, and just for those who haven't seen this, the, the underlying conduct, there's essentially two categories of violations. There was number one, there was US origin software and upgrades and patches that made their way to Iran. Uh, over the course of many, many years, 2010 to 2017, and it's some the number of instances that were cited in the uh, DOJ papers is it's it's they said over 20,000, so it's a large, large number during that time period. And then the other type of violation that we're talking about is U.S.-based cloud services that were accessed from or benefits received in Iran, and those are sort of the two sides of the coin of the nature of these violations. So we have. In connection there, we have obviously, we have the Iranian, uh, we have the ITSR, the Iranian Transactions and Sanctions Regulations, we have the EAR and the US Export Controls uh, regime, and and some and this software is largely subject to national security and encryption controls, so all stuff that could not go to Iran clearly without a license. And then uh, on top of that, um, we have, uh, the willful aspect of the conduct and the fact that that makes this a, a criminal matter. And that's why DOJ was involved. And so the the thing that I really want to start with is, so there is a lot of different, again, a lot of different layers to this. So a couple of, couple of observations and thoughts. From the DOJ perspective, the A number one thing that they are, that is in bright flashing lights that they want everybody to take away from this is, uh, it's a good thing to voluntarily disclose potential willful misconduct because look at SAP. They got an NPA, which is consistent with the policy. Um, they got uh, there is disgorgement, but the penalties are pretty light 
as these things go. Um, they tout the fact that they have spent $27 million in remediation uh, to, to pay for remediation measures, which is a hefty sum. But uh, oftentimes when you see those kind of numbers, it's a pretty transparent attempt to counterbalance the fact that the fines and penalties are pretty minimal. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. But it is an interesting you know, sort of test case. And DOJ touts this as the first instance of a resolution coming under the updated voluntary self-disclosure policy. It's not even called the VSD policy anymore. Um, that was rolled out in December 2019, um, which superseded the original policy that came out in 2016, October 2016. Um, and we noted in one of our very first episodes, there was the Airbus resolution, which they certainly touted the fact that there was some voluntary self-disclosure credit that went to Airbus. Um, so I, I, I take it that that was considered to be under the old policy, not the new policy. And that's why they're touting this as the first resolution under the new policy. But in any event, um, you know, I do think it is worth, this is something we talk about a lot ourselves with our clients. And just generally is just the, the sort of pros and cons of the voluntary self-disclosure calculus and how that weighs. And, and I would say that, um, you know, here, just at a very superficial level, it does seem like given the the extent of the violations that uh were are you know reported here and across the various public statements and the statement of facts that goes along with the mpa it does seem like what what sap is walking away with here is a, pre, a relatively um light penalty um again not that's not meant in a critical sense at all kudos to kudos to their lawyers um uh for you know, wor working uh, successfully through a, what seems to have been a robust internal investigation, and then to to negotiate this outcome. But um, let me let me just throw that to you, Tim, as initial thought, just kind of on the on the big picture VSD question, and on in particular, you know, DOJ using this as a as a template or as a test case to really tout the fact of the benefits of their VSD program and their cooperation program. What are your what are your sort of initial impressions of all that? So, you know, we deal with this all the time, and I, I do think one of the hardest things coming to this practice at, at, from the criminal defense side is kind of when is it in your client's interest to essentially turn themselves in? It is kind of an unusual situation in 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 our American law that a party would go to the enforcement officials. And confess to a crime, um, and and the the theory is in these cases that you do that because you get a lot of leniency. Like that's the only real reason that anybody would ever do it, because you create an enforcement action that otherwise probably wouldn't have existed. Often, you know, wouldn't have existed. And in order to do that, I mean, a company owes a duty to its shareholders to make sure that it's only doing that when it's in the company's best interest to do that. And I think the leniency is really critical to incentivize companies. I mean, if, if DOJ and if the agencies want a robust voluntary disclosure process, they really are going to have to incentivize companies to come in and do that. And I, I think here, you know, given the extent of the violations and, and particularly the ones involving the pass-through entities sending things to Iran, this could have been a really big penalty and it wasn't. 
And so I think companies will look at SAP, look at the statement, the press release that was put out by DOJ afterwards, where they really talk about how lenient they were because they're trying to incentivize companies to come in under this voluntary disclosure program, even if it really wasn't the first voluntary disclosure um, uh, under the, the the real policy, but I guess under the new policy, it technically is. But in any event, I mean, I think if you want a program where people are going to take the extraordinary step of turning themselves in, you have to give extraordinary leniency. And I think they did here. Yeah. And I think one thing that's interesting, and, and, and it's something that I'll note, is that it is a clear difference from the original um, DOJ uh, policy on export and sanctions in terms of VSDs, which I was involved in uh, drafting, you know, the, the benefits here in the new policy in December 2019 are much more concrete. It's just much more concrete sort of how it's spelled out. And, and I think that was a, that was just a, a natural evolution and, and, and the, the FCPA, the guidance from the fraud section in the FCPA has, has, and, and generally under the U S attorney manual has evolved in this direction as well. And now it's all kind of synced up in a, in, in much more of a uh, uniform sort of way on the DOJ side than it was, let's say three, four, five years ago when, when people were starting to try to memorialize this. And I do think that to Tim's point, um, you know, those incentives have to be clear. And I think you have to wait. And obviously the part of that is you're weighing the risk of, can we, is this something we can just deal with and fix ourselves? Or is this going to be, is, is there a whistleblower that's going to come forward or a competitor or a news article that's going to come out, that's going to blow the lid off this, that if we're, if we're not going to, get out in front of it that we're going to end up really suffering. And I, and I think given the extent, given how extensive this problem appears to have been as again, by the sheer numbers and the sort of scope of it. And quite frankly, when it comes to software, as we know, and, and some of the, you know, as they said, sort of updates and patches and how you, and screening IP addresses and some of the other aspects of this. And, you know, part of this was also caused by, perhaps some uh, merger integration issues and maybe not being able to sort of flow down everything to the newly acquired entities and oversee and and institutionalize all of that these are these are problems that we see in businesses of all kinds you know th that are cross border but i think especially when you're talking about the software industry or the the technology industry where a lot of a lot you're not necessarily talking about widgets going from point a to point b um, you know it just it, these are these are difficult things to manage as a compliance matter as a um, and so you know the, I'm not surprised to see that they spent 27 million dollars remediating this in part because they were it seems they were upping the the technology and the technical tools that they had in place to do screening and do automatic blocks and do all those things and so you know that that makes that makes a lot of sense so I think here is you know perhaps a I don't know that there's ever a Maybe there are some 100% clear cases, but this one seems to be a pretty, you know, in hindsight, one that obviously worked out very well for the company and, you know, one that if you were assessing in real time back in the disclosure went in in 2017, that you might have seen if you knew the extent of the problem, like this is one that's just a little too big for us to just try to fix on our own and hope that the government never finds out about it. Right. I mean, that's always the calculus in these cases is you, you really have to be looking at what's going to happen if this gets found out and I don't and I haven't disclosed it. Um, and what are the, what's the likelihood that it's going to get found out? But in a lot of cases, the calculus comes down to, you know, 
if I actually deal with this problem, remediate, and the government comes knocking, it's not going to be a big deal. And so why disclose it? But here, you know, there was really no way that if, if the government came knocking and saw that this had happened, it would have been a disaster um, if it's not in the voluntary disclosure context. And so this is one where I think, you know, the the benefits of leniency were were significant. Often it's not. I mean, often you just look at it and you say, you're probably going to get a cautionary letter if you disclose, and you're probably going to get a cautionary letter if you don't disclose. So why, you know, fix it and take your chances. Right. And also I would, I would also say that, you know, given uh, we know all too well in our and folks that are out sitting in companies right now or advising companies know all too well that it's easy to say sometimes like, yes, okay, we've now diagnosed a problem, we're going to fix it. But if you don't have the fire of a <laughs> of the government breathing down your neck to incentivize you to spend the money and devote the resources to fix it, it's not going to get fixed all the way. It's just not like there's no way. I have a very hard time believing that anybody spends this much money and this much effort to remediate something to this extent if they were doing it entirely on their own outside the scope of let's hope that the government doesn't hammer us at the end of this process with a big penalty. But so as a for compliance professionals and lawyers, it's actually, you know, it's not, not that this is a reason to do it, but it is a it is a reality that you senior management and the people who hold the purse strings are going to be motivated to say yes to do it the right way and do it to the full extent possible if you're up against something like this as opposed to if this is a ni- kind of a nice to have that you're doing sort of on your own behind the scenes without the the scrutiny of the government yeah no i totally agree and one of the things that that we tell clients all the time is the worst case scenario is you find this problem and then you don't fix it because then if the government comes knocking, you're going to be in big trouble. It, I mean, there's a lot of circumstances where you see a problem and you say, you know, it, as long as you really fix it, then you'll probably be about in the same place, whether you disclose it or whether you don't disclose it and the government finds out about it later, because it's not that big a problem. And if it's fixed, the government is not going to, you know, throw the book at you. But I agree with you that the, the voluntary disclosure process itself, especially with a, a problem this big creates the right kind of incentives to fix the problem because you can't, you know, I think a lot, a lot of times what happens is you find this big problem. It's not reported. There's no imminent enforcement action and the company's like, okay, so they, 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 they kind of listen halfway about how big a problem that they're hearing it is and really don't want to spend um, all this money to fix it after they've spent a bunch of money to find out about it. And so, right. it is, but it is the worst, it is the worst case scenario for a company if they don't fix it, because once you identify the problem, if you let it go on, you're going to be in big trouble. Right. Right. I think we see a lot of kind of half measures and half hearted measures that aren't perhaps adequately supported sometimes when um, a decision is made not to go to the government. And then again, that's not to say that the answer in every case is run to the government. We are not advocates of that position by any stretch. Uh, as somebody who used to benefit from folks coming to tell me all about the misconduct that their companies were involved in, I appreciate uh, the value of it, obviously, and we appreciate it now with respect to the companies we counsel. But um, but Tim's is exactly right. If you if you if you diagnose it, you don't do anything about it, or you take a half-hearted half 
measure to deal with it, then that's when you can really get into some hot water. So, um, any other final thoughts on SAP? I don't, I don't think there's a lot here. Obviously, we could we could dive into a number of different aspects, but um, that I, that's really the big one that I wanted to focus on. And then if um, just see if there's anything else that resonated with you from this. Yeah, I just had one thing I wanted to talk about on this, and that is just it, it emphasizes again the challenges in um, eliminating a U.S. nexus for a multinational company that's going to do business in a sanctioned jurisdiction. I mean, SAP is a German company. At least for some of this time period, it, it could have done some of the things that it wanted to do in Iran if it did it without a U.S. nexus, but but that is just much easier said than done. And so unless you're really careful about this sort of thing as a, you know, as a non-US company, um, you can get yourself into big trouble because, you know, the software was coming from the US, you had decisions being made in the US, you had, you know, goods sometimes coming from the US. And so at that point, you know, they, they just weren't careful. And so they, they thought German, German company doing business in Iran not particularly problematic from a sanction standpoint, but it's it's much harder than that. And I think that's how a lot of companies get into trouble and SAP did here. Yeah, not to mention the fact that on that in that same vein, and 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 again the Commerce Department is involved in this, they were part of this resolution as well. And again, there's there's now the three-year audit re- report requirement to commerce to BIS. Um, having you know, again, any items that are subject to the AR that are going to Iran or any or you know or any other sanctioned jurisdiction, that is doesn't matter if you're a non-US company. That is something that you're almost certainly going to need to get licensed through the US. And so, if you're not taking that into account, if you're not, uh, you know, many companies have issues with their own internal classification processes and how accurate they are and. Uh, understanding the rules properly, and and that's another area that's just really fraught if you are if you're looking to do business with these these jurisdictions. So I would just add that as one kind of final thought there as well. Uh, so with that, let's move on to number two. I think I think these next two uh, enforcement actions we're going to talk through are going to be pretty quick. But um, we let's uh, I'll flip it to Tim here to introduce the MoneyGram settlement with OFAC. So MoneyGram, and this this settlement strikes me, it's from late April, and it was a settlement with MoneyGram um, in which MoneyGram was allowing blocked individuals to use its services. When I read this, I was like, come on, seriously. I mean, they, they, so, so when you hear like use, you know, a big multinational company allowing blocked individuals to use their services. That's terrible. That, that, that is this type of stuff that gets, um, financial services companies into trouble. But it turns out that almost all of these individuals were in U.S. custody in BOP, in the Bureau of Prisons. So they were detained individuals who happened to be on the SDN list and they were using the money grant services to, to transfer money in and out of their commissary accounts at BOP. And so, so, you know, th- I think given that there were 359 violations and MoneyGram is a big company, you'd expect the fine to be a lot bigger if there was some serious stuff going on. It was a $34,000 fine. So it was a fine, but it was, you know, for a big company like that, you know, not a particularly large fine. Um, and, and I think the reason is that, that not only would all, virtually all of these transactions have been licensable. But even for a company with a big, sophisticated compliance program, you would think that BOP would also know the rules with respect to the um, SDN individuals in their their custody and not be 
not be allowing those individuals to use the commissary accounts in ways that violated U.S. law if that's what it was doing. And so, I mean, really, if you're going to do this settlement, BOP ought to be entering into a settlement as well with OFAC because BOP is allowing, I mean, they're the ones physically allowing these transfers to go in and out of the commissary accounts. So they're providing services to the SDN every bit as much as MoneyGram was. So yes, there was a settlement with MoneyGram. Um, all, you know, almost all of these transactions, as they say in the settlement, would have been licensable because these are likely humanitarian transactions or personal remittances of the sort that would have been allowed. So um, I'm kind of surprised that everybody wasted their time on this, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, only a couple, only a couple <laughs> of small, a couple of small comments on top of that. Um, the uh, yeah, the BOP aspect, and obviously that that seems to have been from the factual summary. Some of the sorts of confusion here is that I think that MoneyGram was under the impression that this was uh, this this essentially had been was was okay in part because of the BOP aspect of it. Uh, and then the other the other point that they OFAC obviously makes time and again, but I think here it's a because of the strange factual circumstances is another one worth repeating. Is just screening and sort of reason to screen and needing to screen and there's you know a couple of statements in the in the recitation about you know reason to know because of names and other indicia of the fact that there were block persons that were using these services and that they should have known uh moneygram perhaps should have known or had reason to know that 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 would have been run afoul of various sanctions programs you know okay fair enough but at the same time I think we have this conversation a lot with co with companies who 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 have who raise the question. They just say, "Look, do we honestly need to screen everybody, or do we honestly need to screen this segment of people that we interact with, or that segment of people that we interact with?" And obviously, it's going to depend dramatically on what type of business you're in, payment processing, financial services. I think is go is going to be obviously on the more um, you, you know, you you probably have to be on the more rigorous end of the of the spectrum in terms of screening versus not. But in many other, the same logic kind of applies across many other businesses that deal in high volumes and and low dollar amounts, quite frankly. And it's sort of a you know thirty four thousand dollar fine, as Tim just said. If you're doing a raw rational cost benefit analysis, thirty four thousand, maybe a thirty four thousand dollar penalty is you know. It's worth it for the time you would have spent to do this, you know, which would have been times, you know, ten or twenty, right, in terms of expenditure. So, in a in a in the in a cold hard like cost benefit analysis, you know, I think there, there's there's something to be said for thinking on those terms. That being said, I think the clear message is everybody should be aware of and think about screening, no matter what. <laughs> is that's kind of what what you're what they're trying to convey here, uh, no matter how kind of seemingly benign your circumstances may be or your business model may be or the customer group you may be serving may be you, you need to be thinking about screening yeah i mean i i think that's exactly right i mean i think there that that this maybe this wouldn't have been a separate enforcement action but for the, there were a couple other processing errors i mean one with respect to syria and 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 so i think that that probably factored in i mean and and with the syria transaction um my understanding is that that there was some determination made and, and OFAC thought that it was incorrect with respect to whether or not these were personal remittances that would have been allowed. And so I, I think if you had to take one message away 
it is, if you're a financial services company, you, you have to be really rigorous with respect to screening and with re- respect to the application of any exceptions to the sanctions rules because OFAC is counting on you all as the front lines for sanctions enforcement, even above and beyond a government agency that has custody of, of in the individuals doing the, the screening. I mean, that's if, if, if MoneyGram had come to, to, to us and asked for advice on this, and, and you know, it's a risk-based compliance decision – You'd have to say, as a risk matter, the risk that BOP is going to allow um, SDNs in its custody to do things they're not allowed to do seems pretty low. And so you might be better off spending your money elsewhere. Now, you know, if you're doing transactions in Syria, that that is where you ought to be spending your money because those are really those are going to be risky transactions that are hard to sort out. But I, I just think that this is the sort of risk that you look at it and say, you know, if if you can't guard against every risk, which ones can you kind of put to the side and not spend a lot of money trying to fix? And and BOP SDN commissary account transactions would be on the kind of the, yeah, maybe maybe you should spend your money on Syria or try to comply with Iran or something like that. Yeah, agreed. Totally agreed. So um, with that, we'll leave that one behind. I think the next one's going to be also pretty quick. This is Alliance Steel, which also was um, an enforcement action that came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, the the only notable thing, the only thing that I really want to touch on here, and, and Alliance Steel is a it's a it's a U.S. company, a designer and manufacturer of prefabricated steel structures, um, and and so I think the message I'm I'm going to go right to the sort of core message takeaway here as well, which is uh, in the in the public notice, OFAC says that Alliance Steel describes itself as a purely domestic business, uh, and then they go on to say that. Despite that, they had outsourced uh, some engineering services to a company in Iran uh, over the course of some several years and and for over a million dollars worth of services, so pretty significant. Now, they also reveal that there was a senior executive at the company who had a brother who ran this company, and that's the reason that they were outsourcing this to Iran. Um, so it's a kind of it's a kind of, you know, sort of bizarre confluence of circumstances that led to this. But. The key takeaway, again, just to, to get into, to get cut right to the chase is I think even if you regard yourself as a purely U.S. domestic business, not a multinational, not somebody who's doing cross-border business, you still cannot sort of fall asleep at the wheel here because you are subject to the same restrictions as anybody else who was dealing with these issues on a regular basis and sort of throwing your hands up and saying, well, we were kind of ignorant of the rules or we didn't understand the rules is not going to be a defense, obviously. Uh, and that's kind of the point that they're making here is that um, you know, just because you regard yourself as, as sort of a purely domestic U.S. business, you still have to be aware of and attuned to these types of risks. It's not, it's not sort of an affirmative defense or excuse to say, well, we just didn't realize, as we know, these are these are strict reliability violations at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, it, it seems that they dismissed the person who was responsible for the engaging the Iranian company, and they have taken some other measures to um, beef up their compliance. And, and that has, uh, that has largely, it seems, in OFAC's eyes addressed this issue. But but again, it's sort of this idea that you can't necessarily feel 100% safe just saying, well, we're just a U.S. business. We don't have to worry about this. Now, again, it's it's all risk-based. If you truly are confident that there's just not going to be touch points outside the U.S. or there's the likelihood that you're ever going to be touching upon 
uh, you're dealing potentially with block persons or block property or any of those things, then you know you may make the judgment that it's just not it's not worth the time to really invest in. But clearly, it can happen to anyone. It can it can anybody can run across these issues, and so you know being sort of there's no and, and again there's no sort of excuse or affirmative defense to say well this was our first time dealing with something like this or we didn't know because that's not going to be good enough for OFAC necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we see it a lot and I, not necessarily in the sanctions context, um, but you, you have companies that don't export and their view is, you know, we don't have a high export risk. And generally that's true, but there's a few follow on questions that, you know, that can help. Right. So so, for example, here, you know, if you're doing a risk assessment of a company like this, you don't export, you need to check the box. That's lowered your risk a lot that you're going to have an export or sanctions violation. Do you do, do you, what are your connections to Iran? I mean, you know, that, that is a issue that can come up for companies, you know, and, and as, as Alliance saw here, it can come up in a serious way. If you have kind of, if you're, you know, exchanging services back and forth with Iran, even though you're, you're not exporting any of your goods there, you can run into a, a sanctions violation. I think the the place where I've seen this come up far more often is uh, governmental contractors in the U.S. that are handling export controlled items that um, that that really do require some sort of export compliance type, certainly uh, technical data information management system that they may not have because they're not exporting, but because they're handling export controlled items, they actually are taking big risks by not having that sort of, um, careful control over the items that are in their custody. And so I do see that I, I haven't seen it come up in this context before, you know, except for this enforcement action, but, but I, I, I have seen it come up a lot in the context of, of ITAR control and EAR control items that are handled by a U.S. company that doesn't export. Yeah. And, and so that's actually a good segue. Why don't we use that as a segue to the next item, which is Honeywell. And, 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 I'll, and, and we, we sort of included this one in part because it is rare to see a, an enforcement action coming out of the State Department out of DDTC for ITAR violations. And so let me, let me flip it to, to Tim to, to introduce that one. Yeah. So uh, last week we did have, you know, the first big ITAR settlement in a while, probably since the Airbus settlement um, from last year, uh, $13 million settlement with uh, Honeywell and the State Department. Um, the the settlement resolved a proposed charging letter that had 34 um, charges that were alleged with respect to Honeywell. What they were alleged to have done was to, to export uh, controlled technical data. So that was the segue. You've got technical data that, that was being exported to all sorts of different companies. It looks like what the, the gist of what um, Honeywell was accused of is that they were um, transferring drawings to suppliers to make uh, to make ITAR controlled items. And they were doing it in the context of uh, price quotations. So essentially it was before they were actually getting the items, they were trying to get a price quote from a company and they were apparently sending out, um, you know, blueprints and and other materials that are controlled technical data. It was engineering prints showing layouts, dimensions, geometries for manufacturing castings, um, finished parts for, it was aircraft, electronics, and, and gas turbine engines. Now, I think a couple of factors made this one where, you know, 
the State Department doesn't settle a lot of these cases with fines. So it is a big deal when they do. And I think what made this case unusual is that there, there do appear to be a lot of, you know, relatively systemic violations. They happened um, in connection with some huge military products. And so, you know, you, you have a bullet point list cited in the charging document re- relatively frequently, more than once, that these these um, engineering prints involved the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, the B-1B Long Range Bomber, the F-22 Fighter Aircraft. There's just a long list of, you know, the Apache Longbow Helicopter, like big, huge, uh, you know, weapons programs that have taken place over a long period of years. There also were, you know, highly controlled technical data in some of these so special export controls, SME data um, under ITAR 120.7. And so that, and those, that, those controls are there because it's the substantial military utility or capability. So this was really highly controlled tech data, some really important programs. It was relatively systemic over a period of years. And so I think that's what got Honeywell in, into big trouble. But I think the, the lesson learned here is that you really do have to take serious steps when you've got a multinational con- uh company like Honeywell to control your ITAR controlled data. I mean, I guess the other factor here is that one of the countries where this stuff went was was the PRC. So it was a mandatory disclosure. It was probably the worst place that you can send this sort of data if you're going to send it anywhere. Because um, most of the other countries where this stuff went, were, you know, Canada, Ireland, that sort of thing would not have normally been a big deal. But I think that the, the fact that the PRC was involved in Taiwan turned this into a, a kind of a big mess. Yeah, I, th- I think just a couple of points to add. I, I agree with that last point that Tim just made, that b- the fact that, um, you know, three quarters of the of the proposed charges related to transfers or retransfers of control tech data to, to China, that's obviously a big factor, number one. And then number two, I think this also to circle back to the to the SAP discussion, you know, interesting, the resolution here, kind of interesting, also pursuant to a voluntary self-disclosure that was made uh, or uh, to to DTC and um, the, you know, the resolution here, the, the $13 million penalty, some of which is going to be suspended potentially um, after, if there's full compliance, I think, with all aspects of this, there's a three-year term for the consent agreement. Um, during that period, there has to be a special compliance officer appointed. So it's not exactly a monitor, but it's uh, there has to be one external audit completed. And then the, the special compliance officer would be in charge of and responsible for policies and procedures, implementing uh, implementation and oversight and reporting back to DDTC regarding the, the various requirements of the consent agreement. Um, so functioning essentially like a monitor here. Uh, and then... Um, the one big piece, though, that I would say, and again, this kind of goes back to the sort of full and frank cooperation piece and the disclosure piece, um, you know, no debarment, no, de- no, um, no debarment from um, as far as on the government contracting side, which is a big deal uh, to to avoid that penalty. So it seems clear from the the public statements that. Uh, the department was was pretty pleased, I think, with the extent of the cooperation that they received from Honeywell throughout the course of of the matter. And so, again, this this seems to be another this is another example of a company that has done themselves a 
uh, you know, a pretty large strategic benefit by not only coming, having to, you know, disclose, but also, um, you know, the nature of the actions that come thereafter in terms of uh, really being all in on what that means, conducting a robust in, internal investigation, being prepared to remediate and and to fix the, really fix the problems in a in a meaningful way. So I do think that that's that is um, another interesting takeaway here um, from from this resolution that that sort of mirrors up with what we started with on on SAP. Yeah, I think that's I think that that about says it. I mean, if you are in a big case like this one, if you are, you know, if you're on the fence about disclosing, this is a sort of case where you can really you can get some serious benefits. I mean, I I, I think that this is one that you you would do a lot better if you disclose than if you you don't, um, especially if the government is going to find out about it. And here I think there was a good chance that it was. And and again, I, it's not even clear to me that that, that I mean, because that the disclosure was voluntary because this. The, yeah, it's a mandatory. It's yeah, because China's China. a mandatory country, right? Yeah, but but I think that the uh, some of the countries obviously were not um, were outside most, of that. Most but, of them but, were not. Most of them were not. But yeah, that's exactly right. Um, but sort of once once you're in, you're kind of all in, and I think that they took advantage of being in the door whether they had a choice or not in that first instance. And then um, it, it appears it really did a, you know, did a good job sort of thereafter to, to get the best result they could out of this. So, um, so with that, let's, let's leave, let's leave that. And then let's stay on the, let's stay on the military side for our final topic, um, which is uh, Lukong technologies uh, technology. And so a few weeks ago, we talked obviously about Xiaomi and the result that Xiaomi got challenging its CCMC um, listing in district court in DC. Um, and of course, the, the related consequences of that would be the, um, the, uh, the bar on uh, transacting in publicly traded securities for US persons under Executive Order 13959. Um, so Lukong technology found itself in largely the same position. There was a bit of a, the timing on this was a little different in part because the name that was put on the list originally was the wrong name. And then, um, and then there, uh, despite the, so we'll leave that aside for the moment. So they, there was an agreement eventually that the date that the 13959 restrictions were going to actually go into effect was May 8th. So Lu Kong also brought suit in, in DC. Same judge got the case, Judge Contreras. And same result. <laughs> Not surprisingly, right. I think after we, after we, we, and, and we won't go into, into all the detail here, but essentially in the, in the, the court even says this in the memorandum opinion that was just issued last week, they essentially came forward and made, Lukong made basically the same arguments that Xiaomi did, which is that um, the DOD listing of them as a uh, communist Chinese military company was an APA violation. Um, there was no substantial evidence. There was no satisfactory explanation. There was no rational connection between the facts that were supporting this designation or listing and the conclusion that they should be um, that they should be deemed to be a, a communist Chinese military company under Section 1237 of uh, the fiscal year 1999 NDAA um, and. Uh, they went through the same analysis here, which was there was some discussion about affiliated with, and and the court stuck with the same uh, the same definition that it reached the last time, and the government essentially conceded, well, if you stick with the same one, we're pretty much cooked, 
and they were indeed cooked. That was, I think, the quote from oral argument was, "Well, the game's up if we're if you're going to stay with the same uh, if you're going to stay with the same definition, the same uh, reading of affiliated with, then it's hard for us to say that they are affiliated with the PRC or the PLA. Uh, and in fact, that is that is the case. Uh, that's what the court did is they stuck with the same reading of that, not surprisingly. And then they proceeded to go through the the evidence that was that was um, proffered to support the listing." And once again, I think came away just completely underwhelmed that there was anything in the record to really truly support uh, the listing of Lukong. And so there has been a preliminary injunction put in place. One thing that I'll add before I flip it to you, Tim, that I thought was interesting, which I don't believe was in the last um, in the last uh, opinion or the briefing on the last opinion for Xiaomi, which is they also here allege that they were denied adequate process under the APA in part because the uh, the fiscal year 1999 NDAA calls for the DOD to consult with the Attorney General, the Director of the FBI, and the Director of the CIA in identifying entities that should be listed as chi communist Chinese military companies. And there was no evidence whatsoever that that happened here. And they were not able to furnish any evidence of that fact. Um, and they also, I think on the record, admitted that there was nothing, no classified appendix or anything that was going to be filed, uh, uh, you know, in addition to. So I will say, so we've been po pondering and puzzling over what, what kind of process could there possibly be here? And it seems now we maybe have hit on at least some kind of process that at least just going back to the statute, way back to the statute and having this only having occurred for the first time last summer, that there, there at least arguably now should be some record of consultation or con conferring with those, those other uh, heads of agency um, and directors. And that clearly doesn't seem to have happened here. Um, and, and I can say that having been at DOJ and having had to kind of shepherd some of these consultation processes where the attorney general or others in DOJ were asked to weigh in on or concur in certain actions that had to happen under other statutory authorities, there was a formal process for that. There was there were memos that circulated. There was review. There was there were signatures that got put on paper for that. So you know it's not crazy to think that um, perhaps this shows a light, sheds some light on what we would expect or could expect going forward. Now again, this is the tale of the Trump era, the very final gasp of the Trump era to kind of pack as many of these entities on as possible. It's clear there was no real process here. It's clear that what they've come up with in retrospect for at least some of these entities, not all of them, but some of them was paper thin. And the court has now for the second time said that's not going to fly. And we're enjoining the effects of this listing and, and EO13959. So let me throw it over to you on, on that process point and anything else coming out of this one. This, this whole thing is so weird. I mean, so you have a 20-year-old statute that sits dormant, that doesn't really have any consequences, and nobody's ever put anybody on a list. DOD, which is not a, an entity that has a lot of process for kind of dealing with companies on lists, you know, outside the government, 
government contractor context, which is which where they do have process, but here they just kind of create something out of whole cloth. That in and of itself is so extraordinary that that if they're going to do that, you'd expect them to do it with a much like more process rather than less process. Because if you're going to come in 20 years too late and create this list and then work with the president to create like massive consequences for being on this list, because one of the things that I found interesting about this opinion is that, that Judge Contreras went through the fact that that Lukong has a, a huge number of U.S. shareholders. So, so this designation uh, and then combined with the consequences of, of 13959 was going to really affect this company in a, in a huge way. And when you're going to, you know, you're talking probably billions of dollars. And, and when you're talking about that those sort of significant consequences based on a statute that was 20 years old that just kind of sat there dormant with nothing. And then a process that is coming in kind of sweeping in late, you'd expect there to be something more than like a four page memo that gets basic facts like the company's name wrong. I mean, so it's, it's such a, this, 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 this whole kind of Chinese communist military uh, organization designations and then the, the prohibitions on U.S. shareholders or U.S. persons buying shares in these companies is such a weird kind of sui generis process that it's not surprising to me that the government is kind of getting getting beaten up quite badly. Now, the one thing I will say on that is, though, that, that um, you know, I agree with Judge Contreras's definition of affiliated, and I think he does a very nice job of defending it again and against a new attack by the government. And and essentially saying if to be affiliated with the Chinese Communist um, Party means that you're effectively controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Again, that that definition is, in my view, potentially you know subject to attack on appeal by a, a different court. I, I think he does a nice job defending it, um, and I I do think it makes a lot of sense because if if affiliated is a much looser term that is essentially just some link to the Chinese Communist Party, then virtually every Chinese company is going to be subject to that, and so the designation process doesn't really mean anything. So I think effective control is probably the right definition and the best definition, but it is an ambiguous term that, and it's not the only definition. And so I'll be interested to see, given the normal deference that applies to the executive branch, how this opinion fares if the government decides to appeal it. Because I, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see an over an appellate court go the other way on this issue, even though I think it, it would be wrong. And so despite all of the things that I just said about just kind of what a almost joke this whole program is, I think there there could be serious issues on appeal whether or not these the, these PIs will will actually stand. Yeah, a couple couple thoughts there. So obviously this is a kind of an odd remnant of the tail end of the Trump administration era, right? And the the idea that this this list sat dormant for 20 years, 20 plus years and then they kind of scrambled to throw some names on you know, many of which have not really been questioned or challenged, but now this is the second, obviously, second one that has uh, successfully thus far. Um, you know, again, the, the sort of $64,000 question, is there going to be some process built up so in the future that there's a better ability to defend these actions? Um, and, and is this going to be, you know, are we going to look back in hindsight and say, well, those were just a couple of weird outliers that were the result of the hasty uh, process that was kind of put in, you know, that happened in the latter part of 2020 as, as they were scrambling to just throw as many companies on the list as they can. Um, the second is, I think, to the point Tim just made, which is, and, and they make this argument, uh, the 
the plaintiffs made the argument, and then Judge Contreras, I think, sort of uh, credited this, which is, you know, if there's a broader view of what affiliated with means, then there there truly is no limiting principle, and any Chinese company is essentially affiliated with the Chinese government or the PLA or the Communist Party. And we see this a lot because there's a lot of either our either our clients or people who interact with these entities where in, now under the, you know, whether it's the military and user rules under BIS or it's other regimes where given how broad civil military fusion is sort of thought to have, or at least purported to have sort of taken hold within China, it is plausible that the U.S. government could point to just about anybody in China and say civil military fusion, you know, they're in this industry that's important to the military and the Chinese government, therefore they're affiliated with the Chinese government. That's that's essentially what the logic was for both for Xiaomi and for Lukong. Like it's not much more complicated than that. And so it will be interesting to see. And, and I would venture to guess, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I have a hard time thinking that DOJ and that the SG and the powers that be are going to take these up to the to the DC circuit. I, I have a feeling that these are probably going to be, they're probably going to be like, it was only two. <laughs> we, it was only two where we had to take our lumps like this. Because Judge Contreras really vaporized these guys. like, And, and not, not so much the DOJ attorneys who were defending it, but DOD. And, and just said, this is, this is a farce, what you did here, essentially is what he says, <laughs> in his opinion, in slightly more diplomatic terms. But like, don't, don't you know, it, it was pretty harsh, pretty, about as harsh as it gets. And so I would venture to guess they're going to let these die on the vine and perhaps let these two entities walk away unscathed and perhaps be, be done from the list, get off the list formally. And, and they might just breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, that's it. Let's, let's sort of take a deep breath before we do anything else. I have a hard time believing that they're going to challenge these now. Who knows? But I, I, I can you can you can sort of tell that the Biden era Justice Department defending the Trump era DOD in this regard, there's some natural tension there anyway. And I just you know I don't know that there's there's a lot there's probably a lot to lose and maybe very little to gain by trying to take this up up a level and, and appeal. So so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But but I wouldn't be surprised if we see no appeal here. Yeah, no, I, w- I won't be surprised either. I think that that if 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 I were you know in the SG's office trying to figure out whether to to appeal on this, I'd probably want to wait for a better case to try and take on this definition of affiliated than this one. But I do think that 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 um, you know it, it, at some point somebody smart on the government side is going to sit down and come up with a definition of affiliated that is 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 not essentially effective control, but is broader than you know, but is not as broad as just anybody that has some, any Chinese company that has some connection to the Chinese Communist Party, because that's every Chinese company. Um, it's somewhere in between. And I think they they might be able to get a court to, to bite on that if they had a good set of facts. And so I, I think it, in the long run, this issue will get litigated in the appellate courts because somebody, you know, that is uh, that has you know closer facts than Lu Kong or Xiaomi is going to bring a challenge and and potentially whether they win or lose it it'll go up on appeal and and I do think that that definition um, is is pretty narrow and I I think it's right but I think that it is one where I I wouldn't be surprised to see you know reasonable minds differ not to mention the fact that. It stands to reason there's going to be a case that comes down in the future where they're going to just have a better record 
Yeah, no, that's what I mean. This, right? Like, I mean, that's like exactly I'd wait what you're for saying. a better record. Or that there that it won't just be open source internet research and going to the company's website and annual report to try to totally. claim that that's enough. Totally. Uh, you know, again, we made this point the last time. We speculated, well, maybe there could have been classified information to support. Here, it's clear that there doesn't seem to be because they're not filing. There was nothing. That portion of the record, it seems, was not uh, that was not going to bear upon this at all. And so, again, that just suggests that they didn't really do anything in the first instance. They just kind of plucked some names out and said, "These are the names," and then they were kind of stuck with the consequences after that. If that's the if that's the process that they went through. Right. They'll get better. I mean, that, the thing is, is that it, it seems like this was just a, a, almost a, a transparently a joke. And what I mean by that is that I, I do think that a lot of the designations that OFAC does, if you really knew what was going on, they're just as big a joke as this. But OFAC is a lot better now at kind of making a better record. So they they have terms that they're using. They compile, you know, classified and non-classified information in a big file and they, you know, they don't give it to, to us in response to a FOIA request. They they redact everything. But but there is this there is this notion that there was a lot of work done. Um, and whether it's still just as speculative as the Lukong designation, I mean I, I have my doubts, but I also think that there's just, you know, over time the agencies get better at justifying themselves in a way that courts will accept. And the DOD here, like just, you know, this is this is if you were advising DOD on how to put together the worst record imaginable, this is what you would tell them to do. Yeah, I should just as a as one final thought on that, I think you're absolutely right. I should also say circumstances are going to be different on a case by case and on a program by program basis, of course. Yes, as a general matter, I think OFAC is better at this. They've been doing it a long time. They know how to def- they know how to set the record up to allow DOJ to defend it if they have to. Uh, but at the same time, what would we find from the past year, two years, three years? Is it going to be the same amount of rigor and care that was put into all these designations uh, as might have been the case, you know, four, five, six years ago? I don't know. I mean, we we will time will tell. As I think some of these things will ultimately bubble up in uh, in you know court battles over the course of the next couple of years as people are challenging designations, especially with the pace that things were going in the last few years. But um, it's hard to say, and it's hard to, and I don't think anybody should make the mistake of thinking that there's a uniform formula or level of thoroughness and quality that you're going to see necessarily across across the board. Because I, I have based on you know my prior life and having some insight into this, I I doubt that that's the case. I mean that was that's always been the case, but it, even now more so than ever, I would I would doubt that that's the case. So. In any event, an interesting uh, outcome here. We'll see. We'll keep our eyes peeled whether there's any, uh, you know, next steps or, or further actions on either Xiaomi or Lukong. But for now, uh, two for two on the PIs, DOD, DOD 0 for two in in uh, in defending these things. Uh, and so we'll we'll see we'll see what what goes from here. Um, so with that, that wraps up the main portion of the pod. We got through number of topics pretty pretty efficiently and now we will pause for the lightning round sound effect and we're going to do three quick check-ins number one we're going to start with uh jcpoa 2.0 and i'll throw it to tim for that so this is our kind of weekly or bi-weekly or this time tri-weekly roundup on, on what's going on in the indirect negotiations between the united states and iran on um the united states 
wanting to return to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, sometimes called the JCPOA, often referred to as the Iran nuclear deal. Um, President Biden ran on the idea that if, if Iran would come back into compliance, um, the U.S. would uh, rejoin the deal. And, and so you have both sides who really want to get back into this nuclear deal that President Obama um, signed with the Iranians back in 2015. But um, as we've pointed out in some of the earlier episodes, President Trump made that difficult, not only by withdrawing from the JCPOA, but but by adopting approximately a thousand new sanctions in the period between 2018 and, and 20, January of 2021 um, that weren't in existence at the time of the JCPOA. And so you have to go through and decide whether they were consistent with or not consistent with the, the spirit of the JCPOA, because only the sanctions that were nuclear related were lifted by the JCPOA. There's human rights sanctions, missile related sanctions that remained in place. And so by going back into the deal, you have to figure out well, what sanctions will be lifted again in the same way. So when President Trump withdrew from the deal, a lot of people said, I think we may have even said in the media at the time, you know, the risk of doing that is that the Iranians will restart their nuclear program because if there is no deal, there's no restraints on Iran with respect to the nuclear program. And Iran actually waited for about a year, but but ultimately started doing that and has now bought a lot of new centrifuges that wouldn't be allowed under the JCPOA. And my understanding is that one of the sticking points in the deal um, is that is that Iran wants to keep those centrifuges, have them monitored by the, the um, International Atomic Agency, but, but, but keep the centrifuges that weren't allowed by the previous deal. Obviously, the Biden administration would face serious political risk if it were to do that, because essentially, you know, it's one thing to say, let's get back into the JCPOA. It's another thing to say, let's get back into the JCPOA, where we allow Iran to do more with its nuclear program than we did before. So they've essentially gotten some benefit from getting back into the JCPOA that they didn't have before. So that's kind of the lay of the land. As I understand it, there have been two rounds that we've talked about before. Uh, this week, um, the U.S. went back for round three in Vienna, and these are indirect negotiations, meaning that Iran sits in one room and talks with um, the European Union and China and Russia, and then the U.S. sits in another room. And um, on May 6th, the State Department um, negotiator who was just about to fly back to uh, Iran did a, a public briefing on this, and it was very v interesting v to watch. Vienna. Vienna, not or Iran. Vienna. Oh, sorry, <laughs> Iran. Yeah, that would be really weird. Um, yeah, so just about to fly back to Vienna for these negotiations. Um, did a did a briefing, and and the briefing was. I, I found it very interesting because I thought it was pretty candid about some of the, you know, not only the the substantive issues that seem to be the sticking points, but also just the procedural issue that that is really, um, you know, these indirect negotiations are interfering with. Uh, they, they're really slowing down the process because it's like a game of telephone. I mean, there's a lot of misunderstandings, mistranslations. And so by not being in the same room, um, it is leading to issues that wouldn't exist if they were in the same room. The other thing that I found kind of interesting is that 
you know, Iran wanting to, to essentially change the rules a little bit with respect to what it can do and its nuclear program can do. The U.S. wanting to, I think, change the rules a little bit because it seems to want to keep some of these sanctions that were put into place by the Trump administration. And then just today, um, an article came out in Bloomberg that talked about how Iran is, is trying to move the ball a little bit further than the JCPOA did with, because of concerns about the last time around that even though they theoretically got benefits from the JCPOA as a practical matter, the financial system was keeping them from getting the real benefits of the, of the deal because the banks were still hesitant to process transactions that were allowed by the JCPOA. So I think, uh, you know, all of this is, is kind of a long way of saying that there's a lot of issues that are kind of being hammered out. I do think from reading the briefings that there still is significant progress that's being made and that, that, um, they're, they, I think in the next couple of weeks, we'll either find out whether they're on the cusp of the deal or whether everybody walks away. Because I think it really can go in one of two directions. One is that essentially Iran decides that it's going to get, you know, as close to the JCPOA as it can and kind of walk away. The US will do the same and then leave the other issues for another day. In some ways, though, some of the other issues and the other issues meaning kind of what what do you do with the, the missile program? What do you do with the human rights violations? What do you do with respect to some of the issues that were left on the table at the JCPOA? I think the U.S. would like to revisit those after it gets back into the, the deal. Iran may think that the deal is as much as it's willing to do, but would like its maximum sanctions relief. And so I there are some sticking points. I, I still think it's going to happen, but I think that um, reading through the sticking points, I think we anticipated a lot of them, but there were a few of them that, that surprised me. Yeah. So just a couple of quick comments. So th- there were some headlines over the weekend. The the so round three of indirect talks started up on Friday in Vienna. We're recording on Monday, the May 10th. There was some reporting over the weekend suggesting that talks have intensified. I think everybody is, as Tim said, sort of looking to these next few weeks as probably a critical period where there's either going to be some mutual understanding that's reached or perhaps not. And then things might get derailed by the upcoming elections in Iran, or at least that might slow things down and complicate things for a while. So that's that's what we're that's what we're seeing at least right now as we're kind of in that critical period. The other point I want to address is the the point that Tim brought up about the financial sector and the benefits of the financial sector and the and the sticking points there. That was an article that or a note that just came out in Bloomberg today. Um, this is not surprising for a whole host of reasons because it all comes down to whether or not Iran can kind of be back within the global financial system in any kind of meaningful way. And under the JCPOA 1.0, clearly I think they were not. And in fact, in the article, there's some discussion there about the fact that, you know, banks in Europe and other parts of the world were just not having it. They were just not willing to uh, go out on a limb to put themselves at any risk uh, mostly from the U.S. Uh, and from OFAC of inadvertent violations with respect to dealings with Iran and Iranian, the central bank and other banks in Iran. Uh, and I think that is clearly, that is deeply ingrained now, I think, within the sanctions compliance kind of risk um, 
you know, calculus. And it is going to be very difficult to get people off of that. And there would have to be, in my view, something pretty drastic to get people off of that and to get people to think otherwise about that. They, In fact, in the article they talked about, or somebody chimed in and said, you know, one of the key strategies or the key mechanisms that was used the first time around was the U.S. sent teams of people around the uh, from the government around the world to sort of meet with banks and reassure them that this is sort of, you know, Iran's kind of back open for business and here's the U.S. enforcement posture and et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I was part of some of those teams and met with banks in a number of different countries. And I can tell you that that the views were highly skeptical. And quite frankly, that was proven to be correct, that they were right to be highly skeptical of of those kind of promises. And so that that is not going to cut it this time around. What, what could be substituted for that or whether the U.S. would be willing to give more there? I don't know because I just I think it's politically unpalatable to give more there, and I just can't see that there would be uh, much wiggle room for the U.S. on that on that side of things. But it is gonna it is interesting if that's kind of a critical kind of crossroads that we're about to hit or have hit now. Um, I'm not surprised, and and how we get out of that, I don't I don't really know. But it will be interesting to see, and that's something to really pay close attention to to is what the discussion is around that issue, because at the end of the day, that is the critical issue: is it's, how it's is the how issue. is the finance how is the financial sector going to integrate with the world financial community, if at all? How is that going to happen? And I think Iran's view is we it you didn't go far enough, nearly far enough the first time. We're not going to sign up for something that does that again, that leaves us kind of out, hanging out to dry, uh, leaves us isolated. And so what the U.S. would be willing to do there, I just don't know. It's really, that's a that's a critical question, and I just, I don't know. I don't know what what the U.S. would be willing to give there, if anything. So we'll have Well, to see. I mean, maybe some of these payment channels that were created in the last few years could be bulked up, um, could be kind of in- integrated and placed kind of at, at because there are governments involved. So you've got the, you've got the, um, the Swiss, the yeah. Swiss one, you've got the one from, uh, that's Paris, that's French, German, and UK. Yep. Um, and it, I think it's Instex. And so those, those payment channels could, could help. Um, but I also think that, you know, it sounds like they're, they're directly involving Swift in some of these negotiations because they do want to get, um, you know, figure out where SWIFT would, would how, how you can integrate SWIFT into some of the payment processes in a way that is blessed by any agreement. And and to be fair, I, I actually think an agreement like that would be consistent with the JP, JCPOA. It would be essentially, you know, I think what the U.S. is trying to do is figure out, okay, so what what do we have to do to to honor the JCPOA in terms of sanctions relief? That was consistent with the deal that we originally signed. And so, you know, a number of the new Trump sanctions would be off, would be lifted, even though they weren't, you know, formally part of the JCPOA because they didn't list or they didn't exist, but that they're, they were, you know, lifting them is consistent with the spirit of the JCPOA. I, I do think that providing concrete ways that financial transactions can take place is consistent with the, the spirit of the JCPOA. I mean, as you said, Brian, you were on these tours where you were going from the US to banks to say, you know, you can start doing these transactions. That was kind of the the informal way that the 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 agreement did it last time around. That that 
I, I think that would have sufficed if the administrations hadn't changed. I think the banks were coming around, but then the administrations changed and they got much, much more scared. And so the, the financing fell apart. But I think that highlights the, the, the issue that you have to have a process in place that can survive a change in administration that is solid enough that it does that. I mean, the one thing, the last thing I'll note is, of course, as we know all too well, and as anybody who follows us knows all too well, it's easy to say to a European bank, let's say, you're free to do business with with Iran and not be, you know, no secondary sanctions concerns. You don't have to worry about any of that. But we also know as a compliance matter, it's also very difficult to execute transactions flawlessly where there will be no U.S. person involvement and no services flowing from the U.S. and no correspondent accounts and uh, inadvertently. And I think everybody lives in fear of that, which is you have a few hundred, you know, a few hundred of those, a few thousand of those that roll through inadvertently. And all of a sudden you're facing hundreds of millions of dollars of penalties and nobody, nobody wants that and nobody can tolerate that. And so that's where you, that's where the, the cost benefit is just not aligned. And, and that's, I think the fundamental question and whether or not they are able to adequately address that again, I think is a huge question mark. And I, I just don't know. But, and I, I do think that's where Instex and the Swiss the Swiss processing route came through is that because this is so complicated in terms of compliance, you, you really need to have financial institutions that are both backed by some of the EU governments, but also um, become experts at this sort of compliance thing because it's, it's a disaster waiting to happen if you can try and dabble in this area. Yeah. Okay, so we'll leave that for now. That was probably lengthier than a normal lightning round topic, but it's a big topic. We will obviously be back to JCPOA 2.0, uh, probably the very next uh, episode. But let's leave that for now. Two two more to go. These will be quick. Um, so the second lightning round topic uh, relates to some remarks that were given by Secretary Blinken last week at the 51st Conference on the Americas, which is a pretty large uh, conference, typically obviously in person this year, virtual, just like last year. High-level U.S. government officials speak at this, multiple cabinet-level officials. I believe Vice President Harris also spoke at, at this conference. But um, Secretary Blinken made a couple of comments and remarks that were picked up that I just thought were we thought were a, a little bit interesting that we wanted to just reflect on quickly, which is in, in talking through sort of the U.S. Um, uh, you know, relations across the Americas, Central and South America, there were a whole host of issues, obviously, that he covered COVID uh, and climate change and a number of other things, human rights. And then toward the end, Venezuela and Cuba both came up. And the and the the words that he used and the toler and the um, the tone that he used there was pretty telling, I we think, and and was pretty was pretty harsh. It was pretty clear that you know we're not going to tolerate. Um, we're still not going to tolerate, and we're going to work with our partners to. Um, you know, to support democracy and to continue to be tough on on the Maduro regime, to continue to be tough on the Cuban regime. And the only reason we really wanted to highlight this, and perhaps this is not that surprising in this type of a forum, that this is the type of comment that we get, because this has to be, in some ways, this has to be the comment. You can't, you can't really be signaling in a forum like this that you're open to relaxing sanctions or to negotiating directly with some of these parties perhaps but 
it is certainly a counterpoint to what we have been seeing and what we have been focused on, which is whether or not the U.S. was going to take a step back from maximum pressure on the Maduro regime and whether the U.S. was going to take a step back with respect to Cuba and perhaps move us in a direction closer to what the Obama administration had um, had been uh, set on, which was to sort of you know, easing restrictions on Cuba, easing the embargo, perhaps. And this obviously seems to be um, the polar opposite of that, which is we're going to continue to be tough. Uh, and again, I think the U.S. is strategically, you know, taking, uh, you know, taking the temperature of the situation and being selective in terms of when it uses the harsh rhetoric and when it perhaps signals uh, openness or welcomeness to some kind of uh, perhaps. Uh, change that might downshift things on the sanctions front with respect to those countries uh, in exchange for open elections and, and other, uh, you know, other high priority items that the U.S. has in those countries. So that was really it. We just wanted to sort of highlight that quickly to see, sort of see if we, and Tim, what do you think in terms of just looking at the tea leaves? Do we think that this marks any change or we think this is just sort of par for the course in an event like this and, and we'll, it's still in a very much a wait and see with respect to Venezuela and Cuba? Two quick thoughts. I, I, I mean, first, I, I think that there's more. Th- this is part of a negotiation, and and you don't you you don't negotiate in public, and so I think that that the signal in public to the Maduro uh, regime is going to be one of continued strength among allies and and a pressure for democratic elections in Venezuela, and and sanctions can work for that that point. I mean, they're probably. You know, some serious discussions to be had about what democratic elections would look like if Maduro were to agree to them. But, but that I, I suspect that that sort of negotiation is taking place. And from the U.S. perspective, you want to send strength that we're we're not going to back down on the sanctions unless there's real change. So I I I, I I'm not too surprised by it, but it was unusually harsh. The other thing that struck me um, that I think is very important is that it does look like the U.S. is tying Venezuela and Cuba together. And, and that, to me, is a big development. I mean, the Obama administration made direct progress with Cuba in terms of lifting the sanctions that the Trump administration mostly undid. Um, it, it, at least for a while, I think the, the, the thinking here was that the Biden administration would probably move towards the Obama position. It doesn't seem inclined to do that at all, certainly not without um, some linkage to what's going on in Venezuela. And, and I, I think that from a foreign policy perspective, that makes some sense because Venezuela and Cuba have worked together quite a bit to re- respond to maximum pressure over the last four years, but it is new. And so I think it's notable. Yeah, I think it's, you know, right. We'll, we'll see how this plays out in reality, whether they are in fact linked or whether this is sort of, of a, again, of a rhetorical piece where we're kind of, uh, you know, it's not the the troika of terror. The John Bolton term uh, is not really that. That obviously was a linkage that we've saw over the last couple of years. But um, if there's going to be movement, are we going to need to see these levers moving in concert or not? I think that's a it's an interesting question, and and we'll have to we'll just have to see how that plays out over over time. Uh, and it, that brings us to final topic, which is Belarus, and we're coming back to. A discussion that we had a few weeks ago relating to uh, the general license uh, 2G and and now the wind down license that's been issued uh, by OFAC just a couple weeks ago. So I'll I'll turn to Tim for that. There's now a general license 2H, and instead of a long 
license that essentially was a general license authorizing business with these, I believe it's nine state-owned entities in, in Belarus that are very important to the um, financing of, of the, the president there and, and the govern, government there. Um, there is now a wind-down license that expires on June 3rd. And, and this was essentially the fulfillment of a promise that the State Department made um, in early April, um, in which it said uh, to, the, to the current government in Belarus, um, either stop, uh, you know, s- stop cracking down on human rights and stop cracking down on protesters, or we're going to we're going to get rid of this general license, which we've renewed pretty consistently for the last six years. Um, and there was no change in behavior, and so the there is now a wind down license, and so that gen- you know doing business with these companies, um, you know, is no longer. A, a, allowed for us persons going forward and and with respect to contracts that existed before april 19th um 2021 those contracts have to be wound down by june 3rd 2021 or else that they will it will then be um it will then be illegal to deal in the property of any of these entities so it's 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 basically a like you know, sanctions are designed to change behavior, and when they don't change behavior, you ratchet up the sanctions, and it's the administration doing what it what it said it would do. You know, we'll see how effective it is. Yeah, I, I would just add one final thought here, which is um, the press statement or the public statement that accompanied the release of General License 2H from uh, OFAC by the State Department noted that, uh, you know, the release of certain political prisoners and prisoners who were held sort of uh, for contrary to human rights uh, norms would, uh, the the government of Belarus was still being called upon to do those things, which leads one to believe that, you know, if a week from now or two weeks from now, if they were to actually release the list of prisoners, which I think we talked about the first time around was, I can't remember the precise number. It's not an overwhelming number. I mean, it's a large it's number, but three, it's, not, it's not like it's not thousands of people. Right. Yeah. It's a few hundred people yeah. that we're talking about. And they called out a few people by name in the State Department statement. Um, might cause some rethinking here, perhaps. I don't know. Perhaps the perhaps the um, horse is out of the barn. And now that the wind down is on, uh, Belarus is going to pay uh, for their... Um, for their transgressions for the foreseeable future, perhaps, and until um, the U.S. is satisfied that any remediation has really taken hold. But uh, it, there is clear telegraphing in the public statements about release of these prisoners, and you you could get your general license again. We'll we'll see. We'll see if there's any change there. But in the meantime, as Tim said, June 3rd is the date end of the wind down. If you're if you have ongoing business, wind down or send in your license requests uh, to OFAC and. Uh, try to get that covered in the meantime. So, um, yeah, that's that's really all we wanted to say about that. But interesting to see if it's something that's that discreet and that targeted, if there really could be um, some movement on that or or not. We 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 will see. No, I I totally agree. I think that that it's essentially a ratcheting up. There's a June third kind of deadline, and if the Lukashenko you know regime decides to release the 340 political prisoners then uh, you know my guess is that, that that the general license could come back and if they don't then um you know it's probably gone for the foreseeable future until there's a new yep. regime yeah agreed okay and so with that that wraps up uh enforcement palooza 2.0 uh we covered covered a lot of ground covered a lot of topics today uh 
thank you to everybody as always for joining us uh we will uh, be back in two weeks so this will be up in mid-may we'll have another one up before the end of the month uh and um and then as we we're, we're going to stick to the normal two week to every two week schedule but as the summer rolls around and as uh, perhaps we're able to actually leave the Washington DC area uh, fully vaccinated um, for for a change. We uh, we may do that and have some vacations coming up. But for the foreseeable future, we are here as always, talking uh, sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade every every two weeks. Any any final thoughts, Tim, before we sign off? No, we covered a lot today. I didn't we realize did. it was so much. Yeah, covered a lot of topics. That's what we get for taking a week off. We have extra homework to do for the next episode. Uh, but thanks to everybody. Uh, we will see you next time. Uh, and as always, stay stay well, stay healthy, uh, get your shots, and stay sanctions free. Stay sanctions free, everybody. Get your get your sanctions vaccines. Yes. All right. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.